All right, good morning, everyone. You guys can have a seat. Ah, well, welcome, guys. This is a special Sunday for us. I'm glad you all could be here. Uh, what we're doing this morning um, is, is called a town hall meeting. And basically, what that, it's not going to be intimidating or anything like that. Um, in fact, it's kind of fun. You all have this. This is not a Twitter logo. This is a bird. Um, you should have been handed one of these, or you've got one that's near your seat, something like that. Uh, and there's pens around you. And here's what we're going to do. Um, I worked through several different iterations of how we could do this. None of them really ended that well without inviting crazy into the room. There's a saying, just never give up the microphone. So we're not going to do that. Uh, but what I would love to hear from you, uh, and what our board is going to pray through, and our strategy team is going to listen through, uh, we want to know your hopes, your dreams, and your gripes. All are welcome on this piece of paper. You can write as tiny as you'd like. You can use both sides. Whatever you'd like to do, get as many gripes on there as you possibly can. Uh, and then at the end, what we're going to do is we have a, a slide of a sky. Um, and then we're all going to post our hopes, dreams, and gripes uh, right here, uh, going in the same direction. So this is very important because we're going to be talking about unity this morning. Don't be the person that like, sticks it up in the air. Um, we're all going towards the light, towards the open door. Um, so we'll, we'll do that. But you can feel free to do that at any point. It's not rude for you to be writing while I'm speaking. Please take this time. Um, and then also we'll have time and space for communion uh, afterwards. And during that time, we can, we can approach uh, and put this on there. So be thinking about that. Um, basically, what I want to do is we just, we just turned two in this iteration. That is two years uh, of this church where I have been at the helm, uh, which is great. That's awesome. So here's the thing. Our church is now in a phase that we've never been in before. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is we were able to give $5,000 last week to just fire relief. That never would have happened even a year ago. I think last, uh, Sean would know, I think he's outside. The last time we gave away 100%, what, what did we give, Sean? Do you remember for the Houston thing? Putting you on the spot here. <laughs> 2000 That was So within one year, we were able to bump that up to that and we're still financially sustainable here. And so that's a really big deal. We've never really been in a place of like, <laughs> sustainability, so this is weird. Uh, but with that, we're dealing with new things, and there are growing pains. Uh, and there are new things that I'm having to learn every week, and, and it sort of feels akin to we've, we've launched an airplane. Uh, we had no idea how much space we would need on that airplane, so we had to build a whole other wing. Like, we're, we're constructing as this thing is flying. Um, so here's a little stats. I want to give you some hope before I get gripey, and then we'll go back to hope. How does that sound? <laughs> so hope. We have a podcast that gets over 250 downloads a week. Uh, and that's, there's usually between 30 and 50 people in the room here. Uh, and we have a giving base that's, that's much larger than our current sort of iteration on a Sunday morning. Uh, and, and we have more and more people sharing those podcasts, and the sermons are going all over the place. We have downloads from Australia. We have downloads from Amsterdam, which I'll get into a little bit later. Uh, but the message is working. And so what I'm finding is I sit down with pastors uh, and church leaders, and they ask me how it's going. Uh, the two things you're supposed to measure are uh, conversions and baptisms. And they asked me how we're doing on that, and I was like, I think pretty terribly. <laughs> uh, but we're not focused on that stuff. Uh, as much as sort of your, your classic altar call and, and getting those stats and everything like that. Uh, but when I'm talking to, to churches that are just getting started, uh, that are on kind of the cutting edge, there's always that same kind of narrative where they say, like, so the average church attender, just so you know, uh, comes once a month. Once a month. And that's the mindset of, this is my church, this is my home. Uh, but church 
looks differently in 2018 than it did 20 years ago, than it did classically. And I'm honestly here to tell you this isn't a bad thing. I don't think you can grow churches like you used to be able to in that kind of big mega way. I think especially in city centers and in urban places, that idea is going away because it's not the social center of our universe anymore. Uh, there's tons of stuff going on. And here's what I want you to know. I love that we're a church that moves in groups because you guys come back with more life and more stories and you're living this stuff out. So I will never sit up here and go, I need you in church every single week. <laughs> what I will do this morning is a sort of call to action for you though. You would be shocked if we could bump that one week out of the month up to two, just two times a month, that would make a marked difference in what goes on here in a Sunday morning. Uh, because of all the momentum and all the stuff that's going on, there are things that we actually can't get to, and I would love to, but we lack sort of the manpower uh, to do that. So be thinking and praying through that. I know it's going to be number one gripe on everyone. Why would he say that? But just think that through, uh, because in our little church scenario, that will make an enormous difference for our community at large. Um, so that's stuff to be praying about. I want to talk about uh, light this morning. Um, we are at the tail end of the series Heretics. Uh, and so we're gonna get into uh, a heretic named Vincent van Gogh. If you're in Amsterdam, you call him van Gogh. It's not van Gogh. I learned that very, very quickly. Uh, van Gogh, we're gonna talk about um, uh, what it means to gather and remember, what it means to be embodied, and what this thing communion means. Uh, and all of that, we're gonna get to light. And so our, our Christmas series, our Advent series, is gonna be called Shadow and Light. And basically, that's how we see the world. We see because of shadows and rays of light. That's what gives us a picture. That's how we can see how things are shaped. Uh, and a remarkable thing in the Christmas story is this idea of light breaking through. But the one part we don't often talk about is shadow. And shadow is not an evil thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just the thing that's uncomfortable. Shadow is the thing we don't really want to deal with or talk about. And so I want to talk about the juxtaposition of those. Before we all do that, I want to pray. So let's, let's, uh, let's pray together, and we'll jump Lord, thank you for, for resonating. Thank you for everything you're doing here, God. And as, uh, as we get into some awesome stories uh, about your kingdom in our world, uh, I pray just your, your blessing and your breath through all of this. May remember that you're not outside the room. We're not talking about someone who's, uh, who's not hearing what we have to say. You're right here with us. So I, I just pray for that sense of awe and wonder even as we sit in a church service, even as I'm talking. Amen. Uh, so about four years ago, I was actually on staff at a church uh, in Agora Hills. We started in Calabasas, and then we moved. Uh, and that church was a very interesting scenario. Now, I say, like, I don't think churches can be done like this. This one was a weird situation. But the first minute we opened the door, we had over 350 people there. And it was just because of the pastor and his story uh, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it was an instant church. It was just like, boom, OK, we are a church. <laughs> uh, but uh, my wife and I got married, and we moved to Santa Monica, and so I, was, I used to be driving from Hollywood to there, uh, but I, I was here. We didn't have an office or anything in Agora, so I was spending most of my week in Santa Monica, uh, but pastoring and youth pastoring a, a, a group that was 45 miles away. Uh, and I began to walk through the neighborhood, uh, mostly because my wife and I have one car, so I had to walk. <laughs> uh, but I began to walk through the neighborhood, and I just got this overwhelming sense. We live uh, in like Ninth in California, and 
Uh, there's all these big, old church buildings. Like, they're all over the place. Uh, and yet, at that time, not a lot of those big, old church buildings were really doing a whole lot. So I just began to walk and pray. And I would pray, and I would walk, and I sensed this, like, overwhelming urge. Uh, it just felt like, you know, someone should start a church. And that was always like, someone should do that. There's no way I want to do that. <laughs> but someone should start a church in this community uh, for Westsiders. Um, fast forward a couple years, uh, and my dad called me, and he said, Josh, uh, your mom and I are, are sort of dreaming and hoping uh, and, and praying about our next step, uh, where we want to be. They were in Marin County for 11 years, and he's just said, like, I think we need to go and start a new church. My dad's insane. He's done this like 20 times. Um, he's in his late 50s, and he's just, he's got so much horsepower. But anyway, uh, he, he called, and I said, you should really think about Santa Monica. Um, you should really think about the west side of Los Angeles. I think this is a like enormously underserved uh, community. And so he came down and he prayed, and then he told me, "I don't think this is the right place to do a church." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh shoot!" Um, so then we prayed about it more. We prayed about it more, and really, what happened is he really didn't get another job anywhere else, so he was forced to come to the west side. But anyway, uh, we got him. Um, and so we opened up our doors four years ago. Uh, in that iteration, and uh, I'll get to what happened in the middle there, which is a fun story, uh, a little bit later on. But I'm just, I, I'm struck, I'm so thankful uh, that this place exists. I can't believe that this place exists. Um, and Chelsea and I are in this for the long haul. Uh, this is the first time we'll announce this publicly, but uh, we just found out that Chelsea is pregnant. Um, so that's, we're calling it, we're calling it organic church growth. We're just going <laughs> to, um, but we just, organic. Uh, we just found it out. And, uh, and so I, that's why, I, I, so I spent a little bit of, uh, two, almost two weeks ago now, uh, with Richard Rohr, my favorite spiritual thinker and author. Uh, and then I took a trip to Amsterdam. And so if you're all wondering, like, why is Josh been out of town? It's mostly to do with my existential crisis that I'm currently working out. But, um, but uh, I got a, a good, good chance to dream um, and to think about what it means to pass this faith down in an authentic way. I, I'm from a pastor's family, uh, and I'm the only one th out of three kids uh, that still carries this tradition. And I have no idea how I became a pastor, but yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm all the way in. And I got to thinking, like, what was it about the way that I was raised? That we were all in the same home. We all had the same reading materials. We all went to the same Sunday school, Awana classes, you name it. All of that happened, and yet I'm still the only one that's there, and I'm pretty convinced that I, I just don't see them ever wanting to turn back around. Uh, and then that got me thinking about just church in general and just what kind of church do we want to be not five years from now, not 10 years from now, but 20 years from now? What kind of community, what, what mark do we want to leave on this community so that when people mention Resonate, they can go, oh, that's the such and such church, right? Because right now you say resonate, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's the small church. <laughs> but we need a mission, and we need to be on mission. And so part of this hopes and gripes and fears is we want to listen to what you have to say about that mission. It cannot be just me up here going, here's where we're headed, and I know what to do, and plant my flag down. It has to be a group effort. Because uh, honestly, we're not going to be on the same page unless it is. Um, so be thinking through that. But anyway, I got to, so I went to Amsterdam. And uh, my dad pastored a church there as well, and so I, I was walking around and I had like three goals. Um, I wanted to see every huge old empty church building I could uh, and take it down. I think that Amsterdam is about 60 years ahead of where we are right now in terms of just cultural Christianity. 
uh, it, it died a long time ago there in a similar way that you might be seeing it happening around the United States. So I wanted to walk through there, and I wanted to just take in these massive buildings and structures and go, here's, here's the, most, the most fascinating thing about the Dutch culture, and this works so well with the Heretic series. Uh, in 1583, the entire nation of the Netherlands was declared a heretic. <laughs> That's the only nation that has that distinction. Uh, but it was during the Protestant Reformation, all that good stuff, uh, the iconoclast movement, and the Spanish Inquisition called them all heretics, declared it officially uh, from Rome. So I wanted to walk around and just take in these big empty buildings, because in all honesty, I couldn't walk into a single church and actually figure out, well, back in the day when this thing was thriving, what were they all about? Because the largest mark they made was that building, that footprint. That's the largest like, piece of heritage that they have. And you see them clinging to it. It costs like 11 euros to walk in the dang thing. <laughs> so that's the only heritage that these churches have now. And I think that's so enormously sad. I can promise you this, places like Saddleback, big, huge, enormous churches with all of these giant campuses, if we go and see the European model, and we kind of fast forward a little bit here, once a lot of these, these people that built these enormous empires are, are stepping down or retiring or passing away or whatever that is, there's not gonna be a whole lot of people that can fill that same space. Those are big shoes to fill. So what is their largest mark on society gonna be? I hope it's not a building. I hope it's not a shiny new civic center for the city because we can't fill these things anymore. <laughs> I just think we can get so caught up in the engine of church, uh, excuse me, the engine of church that we forget that we should actually be meaning this stuff. Um, and I said this last week, but this is the three things I'm most fascinated with about a religious community is that we can sing together with people that we may totally disagree with, and yet we're singing the same words. And we can pray together with people that we may never talk to outside of this or never get a chance to interact with. And we actually get to pray with them. And then we get to listen with people that we may not agree with. And those are three things I don't think you can do anywhere else. I think those three things are the only reason that church matters, that communities like this matter. So I went to the um, Van Gogh uh, Museum as I was out there, um, and uh, I got to see all of these beautiful, gorgeous paintings. But there was one that was missing, and it was my favorite one, uh, and it's Starry Night. And so if you know the story of Starry Night, this is actually really fascinating. Van Gogh was actually a pastor in his late 20s. His dad was a pastor, and his uncle was a pastor. He had a really interesting relationship with the church. He would go, uh, when he was living in Amsterdam for a brief time, he would go to three church services every morning in different places around the city, one to hear his uncle talk, and then two others just to hear a sermon. He was just on fire for this stuff, to the point that he was like taking the clothes off of his back and trying to give it to people. He was like, I mean this stuff. Why does nobody mean this? And he began to get very disenfranchised with the idea of church. And so in this gorgeous painting, if we turn the lights all the way off there, David, so we can see, um, you can see that there's all of these buildings and there's all of these homes. And if you look closely, you can see that there's light coming from almost every single building or home in this picture, this idea of light of warmth. The one place that does not have a light, and he left this out intentionally, is the church. For Vincent, the light had gone out of that institution. And that's a big deal because one of his most famous quotes about his art when he was living in Arles, uh, south of France, was that he wanted to create this, this, this painting commune to paint with vivid colors never seen before and abundance, uh, an abundant, 
amount of light. He cared about that light. That was a big, big deal. And so leaving this out is very intentional and very jarring. He saw this no longer represents what it's really supposed to represent. And I'm fascinated with that idea of light. Whenever you read light in the scriptures, it's a symbol for awareness. So in the very beginning, when God says, let there be light, all of a sudden you can see what's going on. Light always pushes us to see a greater reality. And here's the really head-trippy, awesome science thing in this. That let there be light, that statement that starts the entire universe, that keeps on echoing, and it keeps on going. The known universe is about 93 billion light years long. That's 5.8 trillion miles. And on top of that, it's expanding at 62 kilometers. You can tell I did my uh, research in Holland. Uh, 62 kilometers per second, per second. Try and wrap your head around that. And the only way we know that and the only way we can measure that is with light. We measure the light and how it expands. And here's something I would love to press upon you. God has to be at least as big as the universe. And it keeps going and it keeps going. It's mind-blowing. Let there be light. And it just keeps moving forward. That's a lot of light. When Moses encounters the burning bush, what is it that he draws his attention to? He sees something lit up that is not being consumed, but he walks past it and he sees a light. And then that light and that voice of God telling him to go back and to free his people, that light brings freedom. That light beckons the whole world into this brand new narrative uh, called freedom. And so when they get out, when, when Moses takes the people uh, from Egypt, and there's the whole let my people go, staff in the water, all that good stuff, and they get back to Mount Sinai, uh, God sets up a way for these people to understand that they are still free. Because how do you take a group of people, a nation of people, a culture of people who have been, current, who have been enslaved for generations, how do you take them out of that and show them, no, 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 you don't have to live like that anymore. Now you are free. Freedom is yours. What God did is he gave them a list of rules so that they could understand that they were free. And a very large part of that was this idea of Sabbath. So one day a week, you did not work. And that just told all of society that we are different, we are set apart, and we are free. In a Roman society, people worked seven days a week. So these people, these Jewish people, when they'd look at them, they'd say, like, those are, those are the lazy people over there because they were the only people that were actually building in a day off into their week. So they give him 10 rules, and he says, this is, this is what to do. This is going to keep you sane, and this is going to let you know that you are free. And then by the time Jesus comes around, those rules had expanded like crazy, right? We go from 10, and then we get into like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and we get all of these like fencing in rules that are kind of just like little sideline rules. By the time Jesus gets there, he understands that now we need to redefine this, we need to rework this, because it's not helping people understand that they are free. They're not seeing salvation in this. They're just seeing more work, more rules, more everything. And so when he comes into the world, which is our, our Christmas, right, which is actually the end of the winter solstice, so that means that light begins to win again. It's the shortest or longest night of the year, and then from there, the sun stays out longer and longer and longer. So when we came upon pagan societies and they had this culture, we said, oh, yeah, that looks like the Christ. That looks like a great way to frame this story. So when Jesus comes along, 
He reworks the entire thing so that now we're reminded that we're free not through just rules and regulations and stuff like that, but actually because of a table, because of this idea of communion. When, when Jesus calls at the Last Supper, when he actually invents this thing for the first time they take it, there's nothing super special or unique about what they're eating, about where they're gathered. All of that is so commonplace, and the reason is that we've begun to look at this as just something we do in church on a Sunday morning. But when God takes the bread and he takes the cup, he says, do this in remembrance of me, when you gather. And so in a sense, that's the original framework for church, to gather, ecclesia, to actually come together. And when you do that, remember me. So as a church, we're caused to gather and to remember, and that's what this table is all about. I got, so my time with uh, Richard Rohr, I got to sit with him for about uh, like 10 minutes. So everyone got kind of like, you, you were there for three days, but you got kind of your like one-on-one -on -one time. Uh, and, and I thought it through, and they're like, make sure you kind of have some questions ready to go, because uh, it is a short time, and you don't want to kind of waste that. And so I was thinking through, what the heck do I want to ask this guy who shaped so much of my faith and understanding of the world and all this stuff? And so there's like this infinite list, and then I realized, but I've, I've read all those books, like I've kind of heard that. I, I want something that he, he, I've never really heard him talk about before. Um, and so I get in, and I only have 10 minutes with him, and I sit down, uh, and I say, hey, uh, Father Rohr, I would really love to hear your thoughts on the Eucharist or on communion. I'd really like to understand what, what you think. Um, and just classic sort of religious leader style, he flipped that back on his head, and he said, well, what do you think it is? And I'm like, well, I've only got 10 minutes here, man. <laughs> uh, but I got into the fanciest explanation that I could come up with, and knowing full well I'm a Protestant and he's a Catholic, so there's this whole thing where they literally believe they're eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood. A little interesting. But anyway, I get into the historical background and the, the beautiful cultural reality that like, when you actually sat around a table, when you were sitting there, you were protected, honor-bound by the person that was hosting you there. So basically when you were there and if someone tried to come in and attack you, you would literally as a host have to attack that person and keep your guests safe. It was a sacred place. And so I'm just riffing and his eyes are lighting up. And this guy is like Yoda. He's just like a little man and he's, he's very wise and he's just he's kind of smiling at me. And I'm like, wow, I'm teaching Richard Rohr something. And then I get into all this explanation and then, and then at the end of it, I was like, so what do you think? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, cool, okay, go on. <laughs> uh, he goes, you know, Josh, he's like, I, I, I agree with everything you have to say, and I think he said it very beautifully. Uh, and remember, I mean, this is like just this, this wise old man who just looks at me and kind of looks up into the, 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 the corner of the room and smiles a little bit, and he goes, but you know, if it's just a symbol, to hell with it. <laughs> and I went, whoa! <laughs> And then my time with Richard Rohr was up. So I got that little nugget of wisdom, uh, and I came out with it. But, but I, I began to process that and think that through. Uh, if it's just a symbol, what does that even mean? And a symbol is a beautiful thing. A metaphor is a gorgeous thing. Sometimes those can be even more true than the literal stuff. But what does it really mean? And I got to this idea of embodiment, which is what the, the Catholics actually do a lot better than we do in a lot of ways. When they take the Eucharist, when they take communion, they are literally taking in Christ so that we take him with us as we leave. It's an embodied practice. It's something we live out, and it's actually something that we mean. It's something that we can actually say, no, I believe in this because it's embodied within me. That's a beautiful picture of what it looks like 
to live this church thing out, to actually move forward uh, into the world. And, and the cool thing about that embodiment thing is that I learned, like, if, if you want to embody this, if you truly want to mean this stuff, oftentimes it's not just going to be you need to increase your quiet time or you need to pray, like, three hours a day, you need to have schedules, you need Jesus calling, whatever that is. It's great. It's all wonderful. But to embody it really means you're, you're passionate about it. Like, it, something about this lights you up. And I realized that uh, a lot of teachers will teach from the, from the perspective of what lights them up. But that's not true for everyone. And so I could sit up here. I love to go through the nerdiness of the scriptures and look up the Greek meaning for this or the Hebrew thing for this, and I literally feel the presence of God when I do that. I get lit up. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, this is incredible. But that's not for everyone. So as we move forward as a church, what I really want us to do is to embody this idea and actually pay attention to what we're passionate about as individuals, because what lights you up will shine a brighter light for this community. It's so cool being this size. I don't know if you guys know this, but you're, I mean, if you just give here, it means so much more to us than for a larger organization or church. When you volunteer here, it means so much more. You may be responsible for feeding all of these people with donuts. I mean, it's a huge task. <laughs> but that stuff actually matters. And if you can find a spot in this community that you're impassioned about, you're emboldened about, I want to encourage you to lean into that. Because we need you. We need your voice. We need your light. I am um, two years into this, uh, this whole church process. I, uh, I was at, the church I was at in Calabasas was a very weird situation. Uh, the reason there were 350 people in the door all at once uh, was because the little family named the Kardashians started the church, uh, which super weird. We can go to coffee. I can walk you through all of that. Um, but they threw millions of dollars into a pot and then just basically said, hire staff, start a church, go. Uh, and so right there, we had a budget. We had everything. We were moving. I was a youth pastor. At age 20, they gave me the responsibility of being a youth pastor, the tech person, the worship leader, and then later on, I handled all of the young adults' ministries, all in one role, all for less than $25,000 a year. So, good stuff. Um, uh, I went through that, and in that process, I, I uh, was a youth pastor to Kylie and Kendall at that time, so I did a really good job, guys. You're welcome. Uh, it's, it's all on me. Um, but I got, to, I got to be in their home uh, for just about two years, which was a pretty incredible thing. Um, and believe it or not, they're some of the sweetest people. Like, they're just, uh, they're just immensely kind. Uh, and the, actually, the kindest person that I met uh, was Caitlin. Um, and Caitlin was then identifying as Bruce. Uh, but I, I got to have so many conversations with her just over and over again. And every, every Sunday at church, and they, would, they were always there, front row, every Sunday, which was also reserved. We can talk about how wacky that is later. But... Every Sunday, uh, I would find Caitlin or she would find me, and, and I'd just get planted there. And I, I began to realize it's not because she likes me or is enjoying this conversation. It's kind of a safety barrier. If you're talking to the youth pastor, not a lot of people are going to want to interrupt and get an autograph or do whatever. Uh, so we would just plant there, and it would be like a five to ten minute conversation almost every week about the fact that I always wear hats and that uh, at the time I was always wearing sandals. You guys are welcome. That phase is over in my life. Uh, but we, were, we would just have these conversations. Uh, and as I left uh, to come 
uh, to start resonate. Uh, the, the church gave me this huge, warm send-off, and, and there she was at the end, and she gave me a hug. Uh, and she just said, I can't wait to come see your church. And I was like, that's amazing. That's so fun. What a weird world I'm living in. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just a couple months later, after we'd started resonate and, and we'd been in this mode for a while, news came out uh, that Caitlin had transitioned. Um, and so we got all sorts of crazy amounts of questions, as you will in church, uh, as you will if you were part of a larger church organization. Um, and so they, they began asking me questions, just like, what is, what's the church's stance on this? All of the, every, every board and every sort of council, they all want a stance. They all want a written out sort of statement in that. And so we were going through what we believed, but I kept getting questions personally. So I was like, okay, well, here's what I'll do. I'll just write something on a Tumblr, which I don't even know if Tumblr is around anymore. I'll just write something on a Tumblr, put it on my Facebook, family and friends can read it so they can kind of get the story. Because the biggest thing that I was driving me crazy was whatever moral way you fall on this, which is fine, there's a broad spectrum, but it's still a human being. It was still a person that I knew, and I saw people just bashing this individual, and they didn't know anything about it, nothing. So I quickly threw this on my Facebook. I told that story, uh, and it was the weirdest sensation in the world. I remember I put down my phone after doing it, and I just saw this. It was like, and then it did not stop for like three days. People were retweeting it. People were posting it other places. People were going everywhere. By the end of all this, it ended up on the Washington Post, and 4.4 million people read it. Changed my life. It also, man, put me through hell. But it was one of the most monumentous moments of my life. And at the end of it, at the end of the little Facebook post that, that could, I wrote, I wrote, let's show the world who Jesus is. Uh, let's be brave. Let's be brave. And I think the most, um, the most impassionate and important thing that I want to offer with my life to the Christian community is bravery. There is so much cowardice and so much fear of losing budgets or losing people or losing whatever just because you might want to speak love into the world. I don't want Resonate to be a community that is not brave. Because the minute it stops being brave, it starts being cowardice, it becomes disingenuous. And honestly, there's too many churches like that. And they're probably better preachers than me and them. <laughs> so that's not why we're here. We're here to be brave and to actually step out in love. And I have to be honest with you, over the last two years, I personally have felt like there have been moments where I have not been brave where I have not stood in the place that I knew God wanted me to be standing in. So moving forward, I want us to be brave. I want us to view this faith in a real way, like we mean it. There's a story in the scripture where, uh, where Jesus is teaching in a home, and the home is so packed. And these guys bring their friend, who's, who's lame and crippled, and they, they want to get him healed, and they know they can't get through the front door, so they actually devise a plan where they get up on the roof. And in those days, it would have been a flat roof that was like thatchy, so you could kind of dig your way through it. And they would dig their way through it, and then they popped their friend down. And right as they do, Jesus responds, wow, your faith has healed you. Your sins are forgiven. 
There isn't, it's the most fascinating story because imagine I'm talking right now and someone is digging a hole through the roof, right? It's not like everyone's just going to be teaching and then all of a sudden this guy on a mat appears and you're like, wow, how did you get here? No, it'd be like a slow, like, kind of awkward shimmy down. But the point is when, when that person gets there, Jesus goes, yes, that's it. That's what faith looks like. It's ripping the roof off. It's becoming way more emboldened than you ever thought you could be because you know the grace that's on the other side is worth it. Because you know that grace is real. And so as we move forward, guys, we need to have more creativity like that. Let's rip the roof off of things so that we can get to the salvation of it all, to the, the Christ of it all. Because those are the kind of communities that are actually going to make a difference and they're actually going to change the world. That's what it means. So I'm going to give you a real picture of what we actually need. Um, I want to be just very clear as we're going to be people that are ripping the roof off and we're going to be people that are on fire uh, for grace and God. Um, we have about 30 people on our uh, volunteer email list. And to be quite honest with you, it's about between five and eight people that are actually pulling all the weight there. Um, and those people have been doing it for a very long time now. And we want to kind of pull them away so that they can have some time to rest and, and sort of cool the jets. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, starting in December, so don't worry, you got a little bit of time. Uh, we're going to ask the people that have been volunteering uh, and have been like consistent in that thing, we're going to ask you to please take a month off. Um, and then what I'm asking all of you right now is that we need people to fill in those gaps. Um, it's not hard stuff. It's stuff like bringing coffee, bringing donuts. It's stuff like setting this stuff up. It's stuff like tearing this stuff down. It could be serving on the music team. Uh, it could be serving on our strategy team or board in that capacity, that kind of stuff. But uh, we're going to ask the people that are the regulars to just come to church uh, because a lot of them have not been able to do that for about three, four years. So you have a community card on your chair there. You also have your bird. If you are interested in volunteering and not on that list uh, that we send out, uh, please let us know. And again, this is not a guilt thing. We just, we really want uh, to, we don't want anyone to burn out. And in small church, that can happen really, really easily because we get super fired up that you're here and we're like, I want you to do all this. It's going to be great. And then like a year later, they're like, I can't go to small church anymore. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. It's never going to work. Uh, so we need to start rotating people uh, through and in and out. So uh, if you're interested in that, just write a little thing, interested in volunteering with your email, you can drop it in there uh, and we'll, we'll get in contact with you. Um, the other deal is we, we need to hire some more people. Um, I'm the only full-time staff member. Chelsea's completely volunteer, runs that whole children's ministry. And if you've never seen how many kids are actually in there, it's quite impressive for the, like, the room size and everything like that. She's like busting at the seams back there. Uh, so we need to hire some help uh, for kids, and we also need to hire some administration help. So this is the one Sunday, maybe, maybe one more in December, just so that we can get everyone involved, um, that I'm going to ask for this. But we need to increase our giving uh, in a pretty large way in 2019. Because uh, right now, here, I'll just be completely bare bones with you. I make $50,000 a year, and this building costs $1,880 per month. We are lean and mean. And that's part of the reason we've been able to stretch so far is because our, our overall costs are very low. But as a, as a mentor of mine, Linus Morris, told me, what brought you here will not bring you there. <laughs> so we need to figure out new ways, and that takes fresh blood and fresh people and fresh leadership. 
Um, so we're looking for like, it would be perfect if this person was administratively amazing, socially engaging, and just a, a brilliant person, but all of those things for a very part-time position is gonna be very hard to come by. So we're gonna do our best, uh, but for that, we kinda need you guys to show up. Um, and the big deal here is like, if you take a look around and this place matters to you and it means something to you, uh, we need an increased amount of help. And not just, not just money, but time, volunteering, all of that stuff. Um, because I'm telling you, and this is kind of difficult to say, but if it doesn't continue in a growth pattern, it won't be here. Uh, and we're, I mean, we're always just a couple months away from going like, I don't know, I don't know if it's gonna work out. But I've, I've learned to sit very comfortably in that spot. But I don't want us to be there for forever. I would love to see this place grow because I think the message that we're sending out is just enormously rare, especially in the community that we're in. So that's my call to action, no guilt. We're all cool here, <laughs> um, but that's what we want to do. So we're going to take communion this morning. We're going to come to the table. Uh, but before we do that, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for, uh, for your church, for your people. Um, I pray for wisdom as we embark on a new year. Uh, I pray for um, an abundance of love and just an overflow of, of more of you more of you in this town, in this community, and in this church. Um, God, as we approach the table this morning, would you remind us what it means that we are embodying this grace, this love, and that we take that with us so joyfully outside of these walls, because that's where the real work needs to be done. Amen.